This is episode number 16 with Jordi Karlinski. Hey, it's Jenny Holbert, and this is the Wild Wellness Podcast, where wild stands for women into living their dreams. This is the place where you'll hear from me and sometimes a special guest on nature-inspired living, personal growth, and soulful lessons from the outdoors as we explore how to feel wild from the inside out while you're on the path to living your dreams. Because I'm here to remind you that when wild women wake, mountains will move. Aspen native Jordi Karlinski started snowboarding at age seven and hasn't stopped since. Jordi reached the professional level during high school where she made the podium at a handful of international events throughout her career. She was named to the U.S. snowboard team twice, first for border cross from 2005 to 2006 and for slope style from 2011 to 2014, where she went on to be a top-ranked international competitor and compete in the 2014 U.S. Olympic qualifiers. Jordy has competed in the X Games, Dew Tours, Grand Prix, Burton Opens, World Cups, and more. Experiencing firsthand how hard the transition was from being a professional athlete to finding a new career and purposeful life post-competition, Jordy became a certified leadership coach and has her own mindful performance coaching business. She works with athletes, individuals, and organizations who are looking to unlock their potential, fulfill their deepest dreams and desires, and live a life that is worth leaping out of bed for. Her coaching approach is intentional and courageous, so clients can access deep transformation, discover their inner power, and feel empowered to journey down a path that lights them up. Are you ready to hear from Jordy? Let's go. Jordy, welcome to the Wild Wellness Podcast. It is so good to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited. Me too. I'm really, really looking forward to chatting with you and hearing about um, your story and about what, the kind of work that you do and just all of the nuggets that I know you have to share. Um, so I thought it would be really amazing to start back to when you began your journey as an athlete snowboarding, age seven, reaching the professional level then in high school, and having had so many athletic accomplishments along the way, competing all over the world, I would just love for you to tell us more about that journey and how it led you to what you do now. So it all started, as you said, when I was seven. Um, I'm from Aspen, Colorado, and we have a really great um, ski and snowboard club here called Aspen Valley Ski and Snowboard Club, or AVSC. And my parents put me in that um, alongside with my brother and sister when we, uh, were younger and through that program, you know, it was just really intimate coaching. We had other kids and friends in the program as well, but, um, you know, you just, your skills develop a lot faster than if you obviously weren't to have gotten coached. So, um, we didn't really know where this would lead. I actually hated snowboarding at first because I was so young and small and if it snowed and was a powder day, I would, the struggle to get down the mountain and you get stuck in the snow or fall behind, you know, whatever it was. So, um, that it took me about like a year or two to actually begin to love snowboarding and through ABSC, um, you know, I just, I don't know. I happened to excel pretty quickly for being a girl. 
Um, I, I surrounded myself with, um, you know, my older brother who was really close in age and my, you know, a lot of other guy friends, there weren't many young girls snowboarding uh, or being coached at the time. And so I think my skill set really, um, again, developed really quickly and, through AVSC, I began to do local competitions, and I was the only female in my age group, so I would win them all. Mm. And this is, you know, when I'm like eight, nine, probably even 10 years old. And I would go to nationals, which was when all the local series would come together at the end of the season in like March or April, and you would compete on the national level. So you would get a lot more experience and exposure and meet people from all over the country competing in snowboarding and all five disciplines, racing, um, border cross, half pipe and slope style. And, you know, I didn't do very well at first in those first few years, because again, I was really the only person competing in my age group in, in Aspen and I didn't have much competition. So I didn't really know what level I needed to be at to do well on the national level. And, um, fast forward to probably middle school, and I'm like 11, um, 12, 13. And I began to go back to nationals and started winning them. And I would, you know, be traded off with either first or second, I would win the overall title. And that really spurred a, like, okay, like, maybe I can do this, you know, for a couple of years or go into the professional level, whatever that looks like. And I stayed with AVSD through high school and I did end up getting on the um, U.S. border cross team um, a couple years later in high school. And um, that was a really cool point in my snowboarding career. And I was able to compete on the international level, World Cups, um, you know, uh, Gravity Games, which I think was my first kind of bigger competition uh medal you got third or second there I can't remember um and I don't know if you know what border cross is but it's where you go down the hill with four four or six um people next to you just it depends on um what kind of the organization was at the time um and you would go over jumps and around bank turns and it was really hectic and it was basically a race and the first person across the finish across the finish line would win or go on to the next heat so you know it would be like quarterfinals semifinals finals and so that was a really exciting time however i just didn't really love border cross i wasn't i wasn't you know called to it every morning being like yeah i can't wait to get up there and just train um and so around the age of 18 i really had to make the decision to and i was still you know, doing half pipe and slope style at this point as well. So I was basically doing three freestyle disciplines. And when I was 18, I needed to make that decision of like, okay, while I love half pipe and I love border cross, they are really fun. I, I have this, you know, slope style has always been calling me like that's the direction I really want to put all of my focus and energy and time into. So I made this, the switch to focus purely on slope style. And at the time I was 18, I had um, moved or, you know, graduated from AVSC because I was out of high school. And I actually started college at CU Boulder for the fall semesters. 
and I would go to school end of August into middle of December. And, you know, come October, November, when the resorts would open up in Colorado, like Keystone or Copper or Breckenridge um, in the early fall, I would just drive up. You know, I think I had every Friday off. I specifically made sure my schedule was pretty free on Fridays. I would drive up to the mountains, start training, getting on snow. And then there was always the dew tour that crept around right before Christmas time. So like that second week in December. And that was always the first event of the season that was, you know, on the professional level. And so I would do that every year. And then I would not go back to school in the spring and I would live up in Breckenridge or either in Aspen and just travel, train and compete in slope style. And I found myself when I was 18, 19, about 20, about three seasons, not really progressing like I had when I was younger. My my progression stopped. Um, I was still training though and, you know, competing and doing fairly well. I wasn't like winning by any means, but I wasn't at the level that I should have been for how long I was in the sport and also um, for where I wanted to be. And I realized that this was my first kind of three years without a coach and I was I didn't know how to adapt and I didn't I thought I could you know do it all myself but apparently I I wasn't that type of person and I wasn't setting goals for myself I wasn't you know thinking about the future and all the tricks I needed to learn or what events I really wanted to do well at I was just kind of like going and just going with the flow and not really doing my best so I reevaluated that probably at the end of when I was about 20 um and I decided to set goals and really start like refocusing on you know the daily training and really make taking full advantage of every single day, every single night going to the gym, you know, making sure I'm strong and healthy outside of snowboarding. And there was a shift in my performance and I felt a lot more, um, just, I was just progressing. I felt more intentional about what I was doing. And in 2011, the U S well, at the end of the 2010 uh, Winter Olympic. I'm sorry. Yeah, 2010 Winter Olympics. Uh, slope style was announced that it would be for the first time ever in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. Mm. So the uh, U.S. team developed a slope style team, which wasn't around before because there really was no point. There was no. It wasn't in the Olympics yet. And so in 2011, the U.S. slope style team formed, and I did well enough at a world champs event in Oslo, Norway. I think I was the top placing American and, you know, had had a pretty good season um, leading up to the, uh, you know, the team naming and was named to the U S team for the second time in my career, but in slope style this time. Um, and so that was a really great, again, turning point in my career. And, I was on the U.S. team for another three years up until 2014, and those three years were all about training for the Olympics, you know, gaining points, you know, bettering your, your tricks and your physical preparation, also some mental preparation in there. And um, 2014 winter, um, 
all of the U.S. Olympic qualifiers are a little crazy. They're, they're in a span from December to January, and we had five events within, I, I mean, a month and a half from middle of December to end of January. It was wow. pretty hectic. And, you know, we're in places like Breckenridge, Copper, and then in Mammoth. And I remember the first contest in Copper, I think it was, was, of course, it was dumping snow. It The speed was not there. It was just, a, you know, it's just the nature of being a winter sports athlete you that's outside you deal with what you are dealt and you know there's not you can't really change the weather and so mm-hmm. you learn to adapt but it's also frustrating when you want to be competing at your highest level but there's things like okay I really physically can't clear the jump I can't get to the landing how am I supposed to do tricks so you know there's always that factor and you just again you you do your best to work with it um but i remember the first two events copper and breckenridge were both just terrible weather windy snowy um you know and so they actually canceled an event i forget i think it was the breckenridge one or or the second breckenridge stop they had to cancel and so they ended up moving i believe it was three events to mammoth all within one week in January. And so we had back to back, like one day was a contest and we would skip another day and have like another contest and then another one back to back. And it was pretty hectic. And again, it's only us people competing for four Olympic spots. And we, I was riding the best I had ever ridden in my life. I, the jumps were awesome. The weather mammoth was great. I remember it was pretty sunny, maybe a little wind, but pretty standard there but you know no out external factors that were really preventing ever from riding at the everyone at their best and um I again was landing tricks that I was so stoked to put down and I knew that it was like well in contention for going to the Olympics and competing on the international state you know the Olympic stage that I could actually do fairly well there and um the last contest I was like neck and neck for the fourth place on the team with my teammate. And I had landed my first run, got a score of 85, which is pretty decent, 85 out of a hundred. So I knew Mm -hmm. I had some room for improvement. And then uh, my teammate had landed her run and she had an 87. And so I was like, okay, shoot. Like I'm, you know, she's already the top spot in front of me. I need to better my second run. And if I don't, then it's all over. Mm -hmm. And I was a total wreck. (laughs) So nervous. The whole week I was so nervous. I could barely eat. I was literally just a total nervous wreck. Um, And I only felt good when I was like on snow and actually just like kind of getting in the flow with the competition and the training and stuff. However, my second run that I needed to land, I fell. I fell on the first jump. It was a switch backside five, I remember, um, which was a harder trick at the time. I mean, it still is today. And um, I over-rotated it just slightly and landed right on my butt. And in that moment, I knew that everything was over. Like, my Olympic dreams were over. Um, what I had worked so hard for, for, you know, practically my entire life was over 16 years of snowboarding was over. And, um, yeah, that, that was, and, you know, after that, it it took me some time to rebound from that. And, 
I tried to get back into training and competing at the end of that winter of the 2014 season, and I just couldn't. I think I was mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. I was burnt out. I didn't have that drive or passion anymore to continue going. And so, you know, after I decided to pull the plug uh, and retire from competition when I when I felt it was ready, so... So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can understand how defeating that would feel. Um, it, that's got to be just so hard to work up for so long in your life. And I've, I've always thought about that with athletes who are competing for the Olympics or in the Olympics that so many years of, of training and time and hours put in and being an athlete myself at a different level, I just can resonate with what it's what it means to show up for something every day and you know even parallels with that in entrepreneurship I guess but just to feel that that defeating um like you said just falling on your butt and then also just feeling exhausted from all of the effort not having let it not having it led lead you to what you expected and just the missed expectations and and loss and all of that um that's got to be so hard um, I know that obviously there's lots of hurdles for athletes that you've gone through in the story you just told and, and others that you've had to and hurdles in life and your coaching that you do now in your coaching approach is rooted in mindfulness and really helping clients tap into that every day, especially during hard times and helping them to cultivate awareness about um, their their mindfulness practice, which often leads to helping them discover their passions and their purpose. So I'm curious now, after having that experience and just with everything culminated in your life, what are some of the specific mindfulness practices that you use and how has that first piece of your journey informed this one now? Yeah, so... While I was competing, you know, I, I didn't know, like, mindfulness lately within the past two years has really blown up, and I didn't know exactly, you know, we worked with sports psychologists on the U.S. team, um, which was super helpful, and what I did as an athlete was I would, basically, I would visualize a lot, and that's something that I even tell some of my um, clients today with my mindful performance coaching is visualization is so important. And it's, you know, while people might not think it's a mindfulness technique, it, it surely is because it's bringing you to, you know, this really grounded intentional place of, and bringing you to the present moment. And you can, what I did, I would visualize my day. Um, I would wake up and I'd be like, okay, like this is what I'm going to wear to get into my, you know, in my snowboarding outfit today, I'm going to get on the lift at this time and I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to train today. And I would visualize every single run. And then within competition, I would wake up and I would visualize every single trick I was doing, make sure I can, you know, start to finish, do it within my own head. I could visualize myself doing that. Mm -hmm. So then when you get into this crazy um, maybe like self-doubt or fear-based kind of thinking or mindset, you can go back to that visualization technique and it will be so grounding. And to me, it really helped me get through those nerves at the top of the start gate before you're about to drop in for your run. I would visualize myself and it, 
you know, doing the tricks, it gave me confidence and it again, regrounded me into that present moment. So, um, visualization was huge and that's one of the techniques I I definitely bring into uh, my coaching today, as well as mantras, you know, just really positive affirmations of like, I can do this or I am good enough. Anything when that self doubt creeps in of like, Oh man, I can't do this trick. Like I'm so scared. You know, you can be like, no, like, I have the practice and I am confident I can do this or really breaking down into um, certain cues. Um, that's something I, you know, the monkey mind is crazy. It, it, it runs and runs and runs. And that's when that self doubt can creep in of like, Oh, well, you know, well, I fell on this trick last time. So why do you think I can do it this time? Well, it's going to hurt. You're going to break your arm, whatever it is like that, you know, and that's so applicable to a lot of aspects in life and that monkey mind is. And so, what I always did too is breaking the trick specifically down into to three steps and three words for each step. So for instance, I, you know, with snowboarding, it would be like, okay, the first step I'm going to do an ollie and then I'm going to bend my knees and grab. And that would be it. And then the rest is um, body or uh, muscle memory, you know? And so it's really calming your mind down into three very achievable steps and that's what you tell yourself to help set yourself up for success. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I, I use those practices as well, visualizing and mantras. And sometimes um, mm-hmm. I have had mantras come to me during a hard workout for me. I can remember a specific time I was doing a run. It was just a training run for a race that I was preparing for, for a trail run. And I was, just having a really hard time that day with the hills. And I remember having this mantra come to me as I was powering up one of the hills and it was, I can do hard things. And that just really met with my, with my feet hitting the ground and my movement as I continued on. And it carried me through the run. I can do hard things. I can do hard things. And that it actually was then the mantra that landed with me towards the latter part of the trail marathon that I was leading up to. And it helped me that day a big time. Like it just, it just came back to me, came full circle. So I think it's really important to practice with them obviously, and not just like keep these as practices that you would pull out of your bag, like during a really big important competition or whatever. Um, Hopefully everyone listening can relate to the fact that visualizing and using mantras or using those cues is something to do every single day. Like even when you're not, if it's not a workout, even if it's just sitting in a meditation and doing a visualizing uh, visualization, or if it's out doing something else, you know, it doesn't have to even be in a workout. Of course, tying it with movement is really powerful too, but it can be a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are you currently training for anything or um, practicing any, mindfulness principles in your own life or training just while we're on that that topic yeah yeah I'm actually training for um a half Ironman right now it's my first triathlon awesome (laughs) I decided to go big because that's kind of just who I am Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and yeah so I you know I was always in I I loved to swim when I was snowboarding um, I just, I loved how it was low impact and you get in the water and I, you know, I, I don't know. I've just always really found the water a really meditative place for me. Yeah. And so I've loved to swim. And then I would of course 
road bike um, as cross training as well. And yeah, last summer was my first um, trail marathon or first running marathon as well. And in the Aspen area, and you know, that was kind of like, okay, if I can do that, then I feel like I can do anything really and an endurance sport. So, you know, snowboarding is not an endurance sport. <laughs> I mean, well, yes, you have to be physical fit, physically fit. Um, you, you're not working your heart as much as, you know, other sports. And so mm-hmm. this was kind of my first tap. The marathon was the first tap into a, a longer endurance sport. And it really gave me the confidence to, you know, I always have this curiosity about doing triathlons. And that's something that I also, you know, tap into a lot with my coaching is like, what are you curious about? You know, what is, what's always been like drawing at you? What has your like gut always kind of been telling you mm-hmm. and like follow that. And for me, I've always had this curiosity around triathlons. And so right now I'm doing, um, it's an, it's coming up in May and I'm in St. George, Utah. And I, you know, and with that, with the mindful practices, like the other day, kind of like you were saying on, you know, your hard run, Mm -hmm. I was on a run as well. And, you know, two hours and I was kind of exhausted and not really in a great mindset. And, one of the mantras I like to use is I have all the energy in the world and you just breathe it in and you breathe in, you know, the surroundings of the fresh air. You look at, I love looking at the trees and like the energy that they're kind of giving off, especially when they're like swaying in the wind and bringing, breathing that in. And um, so again, yeah, going back to the mantras, that's, that's really been a huge part of my training to keep me on track and keep me focused and motivated as well as breaking things down into smaller segments. Cause yeah, when you look at the big picture, it's like, Oh my God, I still have like two more hours of running or like three more hours of biking. You're again, you're going to get overwhelmed and it's really breaking them into small, small steps of like, okay, I'm going to run a mile. Um, and then we'll shift my thinking into the next mile and that's it. Totally. Yeah, I do that on hill repeats a lot when I'm, yeah. instead of looking at the very top, I'll look, you know, maybe 10 feet in front of me and get to that point and then pick another point and get there and then pick another, I mean, that carries me through just, I would yeah. say just about every time I do hill repeats, I put that practice into place mm-hmm. <laughs> because exactly. it, just, it works. Yeah, works a lot better. Okay. You said something just a minute ago about like following your curiosity um, that you often will encourage people to do that when they have that come up, kind of like you followed your curiosity with triathlon. And I'm just curious if you ever, when you're working with people, find that following that curiosity is even more important when someone is feeling burnout or, you know, like you described as feeling just mentally and physically exhausted after doing the same thing for so long and, uh, maybe having a curiosity for something else and being able to explore that. What do you notice that? And what are maybe some of the things that you would tell someone if maybe it's the person listening to this podcast and they're thinking, yeah, I, I feel kind of burnt out with what I'm doing. And there are these things I'm curious about. What would you tell them in order to explore that a little bit more? What steps to take? Yeah. Um, you know, curiosity is, that's an amazing thing. And what I, I believe curiosity really comes from like your inner self and mm-hmm. it's like who you truly are. Um, mm-hmm. when, whether that can, again, you know, there's so many aspects you can be curious about whether it's, you know, you 
I don't know, you want to become an artist or again, you want to train for a race or you may, you might be curious about meditation, whatever it is, or trying a certain food, you know, it's like, that's what, and then you go and do that. And it's like, Oh, that was like really awesome. You know, I followed through on what I was curious about. And oftentimes really tapping into that curiosity um, and becoming really self-aware and listening to what you're telling yourself is really important. And again, that comes back to intuition as well. And that's such a, a major thing is, you know, listening to your intuition and really trusting in it, um, which a lot of people don't do. They're, mm-hmm. they're either afraid of their intuition because they're like, oh, wait, I really want to like, you know, move and go travel the world for a year. But like, well, then... I'm going to have to quit my job and then I might lose all my finances and that, you know, and then it's that monkey mind that comes in that kind of spirals you out of following your intuition or following that curious path. And, you know, to me, when that comes up, um, what I would offer is ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? And, really getting clear with like what your fears are around that curiosity. Um, If you, you know, might not be able to, or if you don't see yourself committing fully to going to that curious place, although maybe you want to, it's like, okay, like what, what fears come up for you and getting really um, clear on what that is. And then asking yourself, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. I, that's so good. I love what you said about, kind of paying attention to that first intuitive hit that you have because mm-hmm. it kind of reminds me of Mel Robbins five second rule. I don't know if you read that book, but her principle it. that like we get this, you know, we get this idea to take action and do something. And there's literally five seconds between that moment. And when that inner critic or monkey mind or whatever you call it, you know, inside starts to kind of analyze and logic and, and talk you out of it. And um, if you count down five, four, three, two, one, and take action, that's like that window of time that's critical. So it just kind of reminds me of paying attention to that and acting quickly. And then I just, but I love that piece of what you added too about asking yourself that question of what's the worst that could happen and play out the worst case scenario because I've totally done that before on things that, you know, I was. I had an intuition about like, maybe this is something to pursue, you know, is this a good move? And it's really mm-hmm. interesting what comes up when you ask yourself that question and how that helps to clarify. Yeah. I grew up with my dad telling me the wor- and I, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard this, but the worst that can happen is that they say no. Mm. And you're like, okay, that's not so bad. Right. <laughs> you know, you're going to put yourself out on a limb, whether that's like, going to ask for a job or, you know, wanting to work with someone, whatever it is, the worst that they can say is no. And it's like, okay, that's actually not so bad. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. still going to survive and move on from this. Yeah. Yeah. Once you really look at it and break it down, hopefully that's helpful for some listening. I'm sure it will be. (laughs) So since retiring from competition in 2014, I know you've developed a passion for snowboarding in the backcountry. And you manage Leave the Boys Behind, a women's specific backcountry guiding service, which I think is so awesome that you help women get out into the backcountry and offer programs that are educational and supportive and fun all at the same time. Um, But I was thinking about that. And I know for me, movement and the outdoors combined have so many lessons 
Uh, and I've seen that unfold for a lot of other people and the work that I get to do too. And I'm just wondering if there's any specific experiences or lessons, even stories that you have that stand out for you as a key moment when the mountains and movement taught you something about yourself or about life? Yeah, um, you know, I think I, I would agree. Mount, movement um, is so important. And before I had a meditation practice, you know, I would consider movement just getting outside just my own meditation because you're fully with yourself, breathing fresh air. And just that itself was so um, rejuvenating and um, powerful to me. However, there was this one of the first experiences I had on a backcountry snowboarding trip was actually in May, probably about probably actually the end of the 2014 winter. So right mm. after I was done competing and my boyfriend and I and um, another couple um, friends, we, we camped out the night before and we were going to go snowboard and climb and then snowboard down this peak called Mount Daly, which is in Snowmass Village. And, you know, it's right in my hometown and it's this beautiful mountain with this gorgeous uh, horizontal stripe across it. And, um, it's springtime and so you need to get up at you know we got up at three in the morning had to trek through some really dense woods that you couldn't see because it was dark there was no trail we had our snowboards on our backs um hiking and you know over logs and through the mud and crossing streams that were kind of now unfrozen and um and we had ice axes and crampons because the snow is super firm first thing in the morning before the sun and the warmth um, warms it up. Mm -hmm. And so you want to get on top by probably 8 a.m. and then down, you know, at a reasonable time just before the snow really starts to melt. And so this was my first time really using crampons, which are like, you know, the, the cleats, the spikes that go on the bottom of your snowboard or ski boots. And then you have an ice axe. And... <laughs> My boyfriend is very experienced and I was not, but you know, I'm confident in my snowboarding skills. Like I can get down anything, mm -hmm. but to me it was getting up. That was scary, um, which a lot of people would think it's the opposite, but for me it was getting up. And I, you know, in that moment when we were kind of near the top of the mountain and I was using my ice axe and I was following Zach's footprints. And again, it was firm snow and I, I kind of had a panic attack. And mm -hmm. I think what I was doing in that moment, I was thinking so much about everything else that I needed to do that morning to get down safely. And I wasn't focusing on each step at a time. And that moment real and Zach, you know, calm me down and we, we got up safely and we got down safely. However, in that moment, when I had that short panic attack, I realized that I need to be fully engaged with what I'm doing in that moment when I'm in the mountains and to not miss a step, to not miss, you know, where you're putting your ice axe to get up safely. And for me, that was a really big lesson again of just when we go through life and, you know, when you're not climbing mountains, but it's so important to get back into the present moment and just see what's in front of you and what you're feeling at that moment. And if there's anything that you might need to shift, um, whether you might feel really tense in your body and you have a fast heartbeat, or you may feel like a knot in your stomach because you've just had a weird conversation with someone or a coworker or a boss. And sometimes when we can go on from those weird interactions or those moments when we feel really stressed or tense, that's 
generally how the rest of our day is going to go. And then we're going to pass that energy on to whoever we're um, in contact with. And then that person might pass their energy, you know, that kind of weird negative energy onto like to that person they're in contact with. So just by coming back to the present moment um, and noticing, again, doing like a body scan and just being like, okay, where am I feeling tense? Like what's going on? Why am I feeling these things? And then figuring out what works for you to shift out of that weird, um, you know, that stress or that anxiety or that fear and whether that's just taking a simple deep breath and being like, okay, now I'm just going to focus on like walking to the grocery store and Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a deep breath and kind of, again, refresh myself. So yeah, that, that was a big eye opening experience for me. Again, of just how important it is to be in the present moment because so much you can notice so much about yourself and what's going on inside your body when you're in the present moment. Oh yeah. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that story. I love Mm -hmm. that. I think it's so good to, uh, to think about the things that we learn from those experiences, but it also really helps to stick. I think when we can visualize and I'm like seeing you, you know, (laughs) trudging through the snow and like with the crampons and I just was getting a visual as you were saying that and that that really anchors (laughs) it in. I think when you're, when you get to embody it, but then also just from a listening perspective, um, when you get to almost feel that if you are really um, visualizing what that would be like. Yeah. So I, I like to say, as you know, when wild women wake, mountains will move. And this kind of came from when I first heard the ancient Chinese proverb that goes, when sleeping women wake, mountains will move. So in my world, it's wild and wild meaning nature inspired outdoors, but also an acronym for women into living their dreams. And I'm just curious. I love to ask this question of guests I have on the podcast. What does that mean to you when wild women wake, mountains will move? Well, first off, I love that. I think it's so mm-hmm. awesome. And you know what first what comes up for me first is that it's like a really powerful statement. And and then when you kind of dig a little bit deeper and peel back the layers of that saying, I guess if you will, or that quote, um, I believe it's like when you really are living into a life that's truly authentically you, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. You can move mountains, you can live out your wildest dreams when you are living authentically who you are and embodying that, like you're deep down who you, like your soul on the soul level, um, on a daily basis, anything is possible. And that's where like joy and happiness and purpose is like arisen from. Oh, that's, re- that's really great. Are there... Are there any things, um, any other things that you do on a daily basis to uh, nurture yourself, to, you know, support you in being the most awake and wild, just in being, you know, the person that you're truly meant to be and what you're here to do? Any rituals that you have or routines that you think would be helpful to share? Yeah. When I wake up in the morning, um, you know, that's, well, I, I love coffee, <laughs> so I have to yeah. get my coffee. But for me in the morning, I'm in a pretty, like, zened out space anyways. And so I, I used to try and meditate in the morning, and it wouldn't really stick with me. Um, I might, you know, sometimes I would have to rush out the door and sometimes not. But for some reason, it I that time of day wasn't working for me. So now what I do in the mornings is I, I have my coffee. I 
do some gentle stretches just to kind of wake the body. Um, and then I will set an intention for the day. Um, for example, today mine was to be more aware in when I'm transitioning from like meetings to, or, you know, whatever's on my calendar mm. to be more aware of the space in between. Mm. Um, Cause that's oftentimes where things get lost and it's like, okay, maybe I can pick up on something between the space in between, or just really, you know, feel like I've lived out this day to the fullest. Um, so I always set an intention in the morning. Um, and then, and I, and I remind myself of that intention throughout the day and, you know, something, a, a cool tip could be if you set an intention, you can set a few alarms, maybe every hour, every other hour on your phone and write that intention as your alarm um, notes. And that alarm will automatically go off and remind you of your intention for the day. And that's a great tip if you aren't used to these types of practices. Um, and then I find that I actually meditate towards the early evening around like 5 p.m. And that's when my day has, you know, fairly finished, I guess, if you will. And oftentimes that's when I feel maybe a little overwhelmed or stressed or I feel like I still need to go, go, go. And I mm -hmm. found that meditating in the evening has really helped me just ground in, kind of reflect on my day and set up for a really nice, like, calm evening. And so that's been working for me well. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and before we wrap up, I'd love to talk about something that you're excited about now. I, I do know in August of this year, 2018, you and your sister, Alex, who's a chef and currently in nutrition school, are going to host an adventure wellness retreat in Snowmass Village, Colorado, which will have hiking and healthy cooking and food and mindful performance workshops, yoga, the mountains, all of that good stuff. But is there anything else yeah. that you want to share that's coming up? You know, that's pretty much it. We're, we're okay. hard at work on that retreat and you know, it'll be our first one and we're really excited to show off our beautiful hometown and people can find more. And so I, you know, on my website for that when it comes up and we're still kind of finalizing the last minute details. But other than that, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably have some local workshops and hikes that I'll do this summer up in the Aspen area. So if anyone's in the Aspen area, please, um, you know, reach out to me um, via social media or on my website and would love to have people participate in the hikes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I, I will link to all of uh, the social media and website and everything in the show notes for anyone that oh, needs to you. click on those. So that'll be easy. So one last question, what's something yeah. that I can do and the listeners can do to support you? Um, would love for, you know, I would say give me a, a follow on Instagram. That's where a lot of easy kind of promotion and what I'm always up to. That's a really, um, Instagram is my first platform um, that I go to to promote workshops or mm -hmm. retreats or um, new kind of coaching services that I'm rolling out. And then also I'd say subscribe to my newsletter. Um, I would love to get more you know, spread the the mindfulness vibe around a little bit more. And that's, again, you can just find that on my website as well. Perfect. Check and check. 
Awesome. <laughs> I got it, and I will share. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us and have this chat, Jordy. I just think that the journey that you've had so far is really inspiring because to me it, it reminds us about how we can rise up and how we can learn through life's challenges. And I just love that you're continuing to show up for that and then pass that along to other people in the ways that you've learned. I think that we, we teach what we're learning and I just really see you embodying that. So that's why I have so much respect for what you're doing. And of course I relate to you in a lot of other ways too, as an athlete and, and the kind of work that you share in the outdoors. But I just um, think it's so great that, that you are showing up as truly an awake and wild woman yourself. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jenny. I appreciate it so much. And thank you for listening. I truly hope you got some amazing inspiration from our conversation today. What's the one thing that resonated with you the most? I'd love for you to come leave a comment on Instagram. You can find me at Jenny Holbert and tag Jordy as well so we can both see it. If you are wanting to share this episode with a friend, you can take a screenshot or send them the link, jennyholbert.com slash 16, so they can be inspired too. If you haven't already subscribed to my podcast, be sure you do so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. And if you love what you're hearing, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a five-star review on iTunes or your podcast app, which will help me reach more people with wild nature-inspired wellness and living their dreams. Remember, everything in this episode can be found in the show notes, and that's at jennyholbert.com forward slash 16. Until next time, keep going. And remember, when wild women wake, mountains will move.